Turn with me, please, to Matthew chapter 20 for this evening in your New Testament scriptures. Matthew chapter 20. We will read verses 1 through 16 for our opening reading. In Matthew 19 and 20, go together. We're looking at this as one section. We'll look last week at chapter 19. We'll look then tonight at chapter 20. Matthew chapter 20, beginning at verse 1. For the kingdom of heaven is like a landowner who went out early in the morning to hire workers for his vineyard. He agreed to pay them a denarius for the day and sent them into his vineyard. About nine in the morning, he went out and saw others standing in the marketplace doing nothing. He told them, you also go and work in my vineyard and I will pay you whatever is right. So they went. He went out again about noon and about three in the afternoon and did the same thing. About five in the afternoon, he went out and found still others standing around. He asked them, why have you been standing here all day long doing nothing? Because no one has hired us, they answered. He said to them, you also go and work in my vineyard. When evening came, the owner of the vineyard said to his foreman, call the workers and pay them their wages, beginning with the last ones hired and going on to the first. The workers who were hired about five in the afternoon came and each received an inheritance. So when those came who were hired first, they expected to receive more. But each of them also received a denarius. When they received it, they began to grumble against the landowner. These who were hired last worked only one hour, they said. And you have made them equal to us who have borne the burden of the work in the heat of the day. But he answered one of them, I am not being unfair to you, friend. Didn't you agree to work for a denarius? Take your pay and go. I want to give the one who was hired last the same as I gave you. Don't I have the right to do what I want with my own money? Or are you envious because I am generous? So the last will be first, and the first will be last. Amen. We'll end our reading there for tonight. We'll consider the whole chapter. So let's pray and ask for God's help. Father in heaven, again, we ask, as Aaron prayed, that you would help us to hear and do your word, to have hearts that are receptive and to love the glory of God and everything you reveal here and to be sent out by your grace to do it and to delight in it. And thank you for what we read in here. It reveals Jesus to us, who is good, gracious, generous, and kind. It helps to worship him, to serve him, and give us your help. For those who can't be with us, maybe they're sick or recovering from surgeries or traveling, whatever it may be. Lord, show mercy to your people tonight and bless us, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, at this point in Matthew's gospel, Jesus is journeying to Jerusalem. And as he makes his way to Jerusalem, he instructs his disciples on the nature of discipleship. He has announced his death twice and told them that if they're to follow him on the path of discipleship, they also must be ready to take up their cross and follow him. These later chapters of Matthew increasingly focus on Jesus's impending suffering. In fact, some have called the Gospels passion stories with long introductions, showing that the focus of these Gospels is on Jesus's work on our behalf. In fact, even here in the middle of Matthew 20, right after we stop the reading, Jesus announces his death a third time. 
And so all those elements combine. His journey to Jerusalem, his announcement of his death, his call to the disciples to take up their cross. All of those elements combine to give these two chapters a focus or an emphasis on the demands of discipleship. Again, if Jesus' disciples are going to walk the path with him that leads through suffering unto glory, then these are the attitudes and actions that must characterize them and us as well. So let's look again at this section tonight, this time chapter 20, which continues to instruct us on the demands of discipleship. And they particularly center around two stories or events tonight. And the first is the workers in the vineyard in verses 1 through 16, what we read for our opening reading. Now, if you compare Matthew 19 and 20 with its sister section in Mark, you'll find that Matthew follows Mark's order perfectly except for this parable. Mark has all of the same events of Matthew 19 and 20, but Mark doesn't give us this parable. Matthew has given it to us here. And when you look at how chapter 19 ended, you had Peter saying, Lord, we've left everything to follow you. What will there be for us? And Jesus says, in the renewal of all things, when I come in the final judgment, you're going to assist me in that judgment. Everyone who's left everything for my sake will receive a recompense and a reward. Many who are first will be last and the last will be first. And then Matthew runs and gives us this story, interrupting the flow that he has followed from Mark so far. So you get the impression that Matthew wants to say a little bit more about this. Let me tell you a little bit more about how God gives out these rewards. Let me tell you a little bit more about how this last will be first and first will be last comment works. And so this parable is a commentary on that. Now, the parable itself is particularly clear. A landowner needs to hire day laborers in his vineyard. So he finds a group of workers early in the morning, agrees to pay them a denarius, that's a standard wage for a full day's work, and he sends them off to work. Then about 9 a.m. he hires another group of workers, and he agrees to pay them whatever is right, and they go off. To work. You get the idea there's a public place where workers can be found. And so he returns to this place again at noon and at 3 p.m. and even at 5 p.m. and hires a last shift of workers who only work for about an hour. Now, when we look at parables, sometimes we may want to uh, find details or assign significance to all the details. And we may wonder, okay, why didn't these later groups get hired earlier? Did, did they arrive too late? For the morning shift, you know, kind of people who sleep in, they reflect a bad work ethic. Uh, was there not enough initial work to hire them? Were they the least desirable workers that we don't want to hire those guys? But the parable doesn't say. And, and I would caution against pressing too far and, and trying to infer too much significance from the details. We could say the same thing about the landowner's hiring practice. I mean, did the landowner not know when the day started how many workers he would need? Why does he have to keep going back in order to get more workers? Again, the parable doesn't focus there on those details. I suppose if we could extract anything from those details, it would be that we have here an incredibly generous landowner 
and that he's very interested in continually recruiting workers into his vineyard. And I think the end of the parable will comment on that. And so that brings us then to the conclusion. At the end of the day, he calls the workers. And he pays them in reverse order to which they were hired. So he pays the last hired worker first. And he pays these workers hired last at 5 p.m. He pays them a denarius. A standard wage for a full day's work. The exact amount he agreed to pay the people he hired first, early in the morning. Well, when the first hired workers see that, they get excited. They think, hey, if he's paying the 5 p.m. one hour shift a full day worth of work, what are we going to get? But they're quickly disappointed when they receive the same amount, a denarius. And they complain to the manager, how can you pay the same amount of the people who worked one hour as those of us who worked all day in the heat? In fact, they use the phrase, you have made them equal to us. And the manager replies, I am not being unfair to you, friend. Didn't you agree to work for a denarius? Take your pay and go. I want to give the one who was hired last the same as I gave you. Don't I have the right to do what I want with my own money? Or are you envious because I am generous? And so Jesus concludes, so the last will be first and the first will be last. You see how he's equalized the workers. You, you can't tell the first and the last apart. It's not so much that he's reversed their order as he's equalized them. By the way he's paid them, you can't tell who is who anymore. And that brings us then into the application of the parable. What does it tell us about the kingdom of heaven? What does it tell us about the demands of discipleship? It tells us a few things. Jesus first is pushing against this conventional wisdom that what you work for, well, that's what you get. Or to turn it around, that rewards are always commensurate. They always measure up to the services rendered. Instead, in God's kingdom, God rules by grace and not by what we deserve. And this parable comes, by the way, in a gospel that in other places does speak of rewards, that uses language like the greatest and the least in the kingdom of heaven. However we understand that language, however we understand those rewards, we have to understand them in conjunction with this parable. And that would inform us then that whatever God gives us is not earned, it is a gift. And it is not in proportion to human effort. And if that by, by some chance makes it sound like God is stingy, no, it's actually the opposite. The parable is trying to emphasize the exact opposite, which is this. God delights to give his servants far more than they could ever deserve from him. Again, I don't think it's a very smart, or at least a not a very good planning landowner that has to keep going back to the market this many times for workers. But that's the point. God is that generous. It's not that he doesn't know how to plan. He's just so generous. And he just delights in giving people payment that far exceeds what they deserve. And what they can earn. 
So the point of the parable, it's not to smack down complainers. Hey, don't you people complain. I did what I told you I do. It's not to uphold some standard of fairness. You know, it's always equal or however you cut that. It's to make all of us who receive God's kingdom rejoice in God's unmerited favor, his total grace, and in his unlimited generosity. And so that's how it functions then as a commentary on Peter's question at the end of the previous chapter. Peter said, Lord, we, we've left everything to follow you. And Jesus is saying, and you won't lose out. No one loses out by becoming a disciple. It's always worth it. You will be given what your master promised you, and it will be by grace, and it will be generous. But at the same time, it's not just those who go out early in the morning who are blessed by God. And becoming a disciple means changing the way we think about God, changing the way we think about ourselves, changing the way we think about others, changing the way we think about what we deserve, changing the way we think about what others deserve. The parable assures us that God is never unfair. He is very generous and all disciples are fundamentally equal in his sight. So in the kingdom, everyone who obeys God's call is on equal footing. And that's good news. Because it means that God does not love you based on what you can give him. It does not mean that God loves you or values you more than that other disciple. Even if perhaps when we look at what others have, we may say, hey, God's given them something that he haven't, hasn't given me. That does not mean then that God loves them more than he loves you. God loves his people. God is generous to his people. He is never in our debt. We can never get him over the barrel. And yet his goodness is more generous than we could ever imagine. That's what these workers have learned. That's what we have to learn as well. We're not the early in the morning people. We're probably the 5 p.m. people. But whatever we get, it is God's generous, unmerited grace. So let's come then to look at the other major story in this chapter the mother's request in verses 20 to 28. But as we go into those verses, I want you to notice the irony of the sequence of the next two paragraphs. So follow this. Look at the order of events in chapter 20 as a whole. So we've got a parable where Jesus emphasizes generosity, equality, grace. And then he announces his impending death and resurrection, verses 7 to 19. And what better manifestation of grace and generosity that brings us equally into the kingdom can there be than the sacrificial death of Jesus? So you've got those two back to back. So as readers, imagine our shock then when the next paragraph begins in verse 20 with the mother of Zebedee's son, son, so this is the mother of James and John, the disciples of Jesus. Their mother goes and makes this request. Verse 21, grant that one of these two sons of mine may sit at your right and the other at your left in your kingdom. <sighs> you know, it's like maybe when a teacher finally gets the classroom calmed down only to turn around and the place just erupts again. Like, will these people never get it? Now, since the request comes by the mother of these disciples, maybe we should cut her some slack because maybe she didn't hear what Jesus just said. So she means well 
and she's not privy to what Jesus has said. Remember, Bathsheba appealed to David to get the throne of Solomon. So maybe she's been reading that story and she wants what's best for her sons. However, in Mark's gospel, the request comes directly from the brothers. So I wonder if the brothers put their mother up to it, which is why Matthew records it the way he does. Regardless of who initiated the request, let's look at it. Let's look at Jesus' answer, and let's see how it instructs us on the nature of the kingdom and the demands of discipleship. Again, it's interesting how some people, and we do this too, so I'm not standing in judgment on the disciples. We're to see ourselves in this story. But it's interesting how people can miss the point. So we've been putting an angle on these chapters. I think it's the one Matthew intends. With Jesus announcing his death, going to Jerusalem to die, instructing his disciples on how to follow him. And everything is just turning things upside down. God's kingdom is an upside down kingdom where God brings things about in contrast to how the world operates. That's the angle on Matthew here. But here's what James and John are hearing as they live out the story. Jesus is the Messiah. He's the son of man. The son of man exercises victory and sovereignty over the earth. We're getting really close to the royal city, Jerusalem. Jesus keeps calling himself king. He just said we're going to sit on 12 thrones judging Israel. This whole kingdom thing must be about to kick off. And if that's so, we better go get at the front of the line and secure our position on Jesus' right and left hand. Those are the positions of greatest honor sitting beside a king. I mean, maybe even when Jesus said you're going to sit on 12 thrones, maybe that sounded just a little too equal for them. Think of King Arthur's round table where you can't tell who's at the head. Hey, if there's going to be 12 thrones, we better get the two that are right beside Jesus. And Jesus' first response to them is to remind them, friends, there is no throne wherever you sit. There is no throne without suffering. Verse 22. You don't know what you are asking, Jesus said to them. Can you drink the cup I am going to drink? Referring to his death. Now, interestingly, they reply, we can. So maybe they grasped some of what Jesus has said about taking up the cross. And Jesus actually accepts their answer in verse 23a, the, the first part of verse 23. He says, you will indeed drink from my cup. So sometimes when disciples make boasts, Jesus kind of pushes back. But here they say, yeah, we can drink that cup because you know what? You're right. You will. And according to Acts 12.1, James was later martyred. And according to Revelation 1.9, John suffered exile for Jesus' sake. So they did eventually drink a cup like their Lord's. However, Jesus goes on to say, their positive answer, their, their willingness to drink that cup, that doesn't grant them the position of power that they seek. Rather, Jesus gives this cryptic response, the end of verse 23. But to sit at my right or left is not for me to grant. These places belong to those for whom they have been prepared. By my father. Now, what is Jesus saying here? Okay, he could simply be saying these two positions have already been determined and they're not for you. That, that is possible. I think, though, he's saying a little more than that. But in order to make sense of what he's saying, we have to look at the rest of the story. So just keep that phrase in mind and let's finish out the story in order to make sense of it. 
When the rest of the disciples hear what James and John have done, they are indignant. And most likely because they're mad that James and John tried to beat them to the front of the line. I mean, they want that position too. And how did these guys get a head start on us? And they use their mother uh, to do it. So Jesus just responds to all of them in verses 25 to 28. You know that the rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them. And their high officials exercise authority over them. Not so with you. Instead, whoever wants to become great among you must be your servant. And whoever wants to be first must be your slave. Just as the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve. And to give his life as a ransom for many. What is Jesus saying? Those positions of authority and seeking over them... That are seeking for them. That's how the world operates. God's kingdom doesn't work that way. If you want to reign in God's kingdom, you must serve one another. In fact, we could even say that's what it means to reign in God's kingdom. That we serve one another. That we give up our power and we give up our authority in order to serve others. And why? Why do it that way? Because that's what Jesus did. Even as I came to serve and to give my life as a ransom for many. Jesus let people take power from him. He let people kill him. And he did that in order to bring us into his kingdom. And those who follow him must do likewise. And that brings me back then to Jesus' statement about those who will sit on his right and his left. The next time you see that phrase, on the right and the left, the next time you see that phrase in Matthew, it's used with reference to the two criminals who are crucified on Jesus' right and left hand. And I think he's alluding to that, and Matthew is writing it this way to make us think of that. Jesus is saying this, you want to reign in my kingdom? It's for those who take the position on my right and left by being crucified, by taking up their cross and following me. If you want to reign in my kingdom, that's the position you have to take, or at least be ready to take it. So I don't think Jesus is saying, okay, there's two Christians and they're predetermined to sit on my right and left hand, but we won't know who they are until I come again. No, he's saying anyone who wants to reign with me. Anyone who wants to sit on those thrones must give up their ideas and their ambitions for worldly power. They must take the lowest place of a servant and a slave. They must serve one another, and that's how God's kingdom will come. R.T. Franz writes, The natural human concern with status and importance is clearly one of the most fundamental instincts which must be unlearned by those who belong to God's kingdom. And I think then that's why Jesus accepts their answer. Can you drink this cup? We will. And he goes, no, you're right. Because those who are appointed by my father to sit on my right and my left, they do it by sitting on my right and my left like those who will be crucified with me. And you will go through that path. And that's how you'll enter the kingdom. But you've got to learn now that the way there is through service. And so then the chapter ends with this story where Jesus heals two blind men in verses 29 through 34. 
I've said Jesus has been making his way to Jerusalem. In this story, he leaves Jericho. And when we look at the beginning of chapter 1, you have the triumphal entry. And on the way between teaching his disciples and appearing in Jerusalem as king, Matthew has given us this short story of the healing of two blind men. And I don't want to be too nifty, but I can't help but wonder if Matthew included the story here to illustrate this idea. We all need Jesus to open our eyes if we are to understand and enter his kingdom. Because as he draws near, as he leaves Jericho, and in the story, there's two blind men by the roadside. They cry out, Lord, son of David, have mercy on us. And this time the crowd plays the role of the disciples, telling them, be quiet, don't bother him. But they continue to cry out. And Jesus grants their request. So in the same way, if you're hungry to enter God's kingdom, and if you hear Jesus giving these demands, you say, man, that's really intimidating. That's really hard. You know, on one level, it should function that way. But it should also function on this level, which is to say, yeah, you're right. It is really hard. But Jesus says, if you cry out to me to open your eyes, if you cry out to me for mercy, I will give it to you. And you'll join my royal entourage. And you'll go with me down this path. Whatever that path looks like for you. Whatever the suffering or hardship looks like. Jesus says, you'll go down that path with me and I'll give you grace because I'm here to give mercy. I'm here to give compassion. I'm here to give generously. I'm recruiting people into my vineyard. So cry out to me for those eyes to see and I'll bring you and help you in this glorious kingdom. So let's thank God for that. Let's pray for ourselves. Father in heaven again, thank you just for your many continued mercies towards us and another day together considering those mercies and considering your word thank you for the lord jesus christ who came to serve and gave his life as a ransom for many thank you lord for saving our souls and making us whole thank you that you love us that you show mercy on those who cry out to you that you're so generous to those whom you recruit and that you recruit many and that you recruit in a generous manner and you, you repay them graciously and generously. So Lord, help us to follow you on the path. Continually convince us and assure us that it's worth it and that you are wise. You know exactly what you're doing with the path that you call us to walk. And I pray you continue to take this church down that path and show us great things. Help us to follow you. Forgive us of our sins and thank you for your many mercies. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.